welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist, pick their brains, and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by entomologist, arachnologist, and agricultural scientist Mary Whitehouse. Mary, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me here in your office in Narrabri. Uh, so for people listening, where, where are we? Where's Narrabri? <laughs> Okay, we're inland New South Wales. Mm -hmm. We're um, 200 kilometres inland from Tamworth. We're about seven hours, both from Sydney and Brisbane. So that's about 600 k's, Mm -hmm. 620 k's from both Brisbane and Sydney. If you want to find us when you're looking at your weather map, (laughs) there's that big dark patch on the weather map on the sort of western side of Australia just below the border to Queensland. Um, it's called the Pilliga, mm-hmm. and we're at the top of that. All right. And it's an odd little hub of science yes. for some reason. So here in the CSIRO facilities, and there's a cotton research center down the road and an observatory. and We, we research institute as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure if it's still true, but it used to be that Narrabri had the highest number of PhDs per head of population anywhere in Australia. I mean, it's a small town, so I'd I'd believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Population, yeah, I can't quite remember that one. I think the surrounding area is 12,000, and Narrabri itself is over 8,000. Okay, I've I've heard Canberra claim the same thing. Armadale (gasps) claims the same thing. Oh, my God. That's so wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Going to have to get some data on this. I think so. I think it, yeah. Do you know why this is such a hub for research? Um, because of all the different research institutes here. Mm-hmm. You've got CSIRO, you've got DPI, you've got University of Sydney. You've got two two versions of D, of CSIRO because mm-hmm. we've got the satellite, um, the radar satellites as well as the, res- the yeah. Cotton Research Institute. But we may have dropped because the number of people working at the sal- satellite has dropped as mm-hmm. a lot of people clue in, uh, um, tune in remotely now. Mm-hmm. It is a pretty spectacular little telescope, if you can get out there. I think the, actually the first time I came to Narrabri was back in goodness knows when, when I just started my PhD and you were running the Animal Behaviour Conference. 2010. Jeez, was that long ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sad but true. (laughs) That was a great conference. You know how to run a good conference. (laughs) (laughs) No, I had lots of fun. It was really good. Yeah. And I mean, you're here in the CSIRO. Yeah. And does the CSIRO out here have its own cotton farms or is it working with cotton farmers? Both. You're okay. actually on the cotton farm. Okay. Okay, so our this side here is basically two large cotton farm paddocks. I've actually got, it won't help your readers, but, <laughs> but I have, I, I can show map. you on a map. Yeah. <laughs> We're basically like two large fields. Okay. Um, and we lease from our neighbours, and mm-hmm. we also work with the growers. So we go and talk to growers and ask them if we can put experiments on their land. Mm-hmm. And the cotton industry is really progressive, so it's really um, good to work with from a research perspective mm. because um, the people are well, highly educated, and a lot of them are very progressive and interested in actually expanding um, their understanding of their crops I mean, it's a big industry for Australia in general, right? I think now I'm not 100% sure on this, but about 1,200 growers, I Mm -hmm. think. It's about 1,200 growers. 
um, the amount of cotton planted varies a lot depending on whether on how much rain we get in the season so mm -hmm. that can be quite variable um, we have both irrigated and dry land farmers and we should clarify for anyone listening cotton doesn't come from sheep it's <laughs> so there's big crops out here yeah. and they're they're kind of I don't know, as an ecologist, I'm not allowed to admit this, but they're kind of beautiful things if you come in harvesting time and you're driving through this area. There's just these vast fields of fluffy white. Yeah. No, they're actually um, quite interesting ecologically because mm. what has happened now is that with the advent of BT cotton, so that's a transgenic, um, so to begin with, in um, 96, they introduced one gene to the cotton, and that was to control a really devastating pest, um, a little caterpillar, Helicoverpa, mm -hmm. um, which really nearly destroyed the industry. Then um, they added another gene to help control this pest in 2003, and the latest gene, so it's not one, not two, but three genes now, um, and that came in 2016. So we now have three genes targeting this one pest. Mm -hmm. And um, in the past, um, this pest um, had become so good at developing resistance to the insecticides that were thrown at it that um, the industry was brought to its knees and nearly fell over. Okay. Nearly fell over and it did fall over up north in 1974 and it nearly fell over in the season of 1998-99 because they couldn't control the pest. They were just putting horrible sprays, lots of horrible sprays on it. No control. So these and are native moths? Or? Uh, Midura is, in, is cosmopolitan, so mm -hmm. there's two species. Um, Helicoverpa midula, which is the one that builds resistance to insecticides easily, it's international. And then you have Helicoverpa punctigera, which is the local variety, mm -hmm. which has not been so good at developing resistance to insecticides, but is almost on par as Armidura at developing resistance to BT toxins. Okay, mm. so, um, yeah, so... So um, I'm not sure which thread to go here because BT <laughs> toxins is from a um, bacteria. Um, All right, that, so this is the gene that was stuck into the cotton was a gene from bacteria. Yeah, from yep. a bacteria, Bacillus thuringiensis. Mm -hmm. um, all three of them have come from this bacteria. And um, when the caterpillar eats the cotton, it gives it septicemia and kills okay. it. So that's how that works. Yep. Um, yeah. So the first... Gene, I guess, was stuck in. Cry1AC was the first one. Yeah. And after that, we saw these moths starting to develop a resistance to that. Is that right? Ah, uh, that, that's quite a complicated story. That mm. one. Um, the what the in terms of resistance in Australia, resistance to Cry1AC is very low. Okay. One in a thousand alleles. Um, whereas resistance to Cry2AB and VIP, which is the other one, is much higher, a much higher frequency, an order of magnitude higher. Mm -hmm. um, due to the resistance management plan, um, resistance levels have been kept low. There's a whole lot of things in place to stop cotton developing resistance. With Cry1AC, even though the resistance is very low and it looks like um, it could have a cost to the animal in... Um, Scarily, very scarily, in China, 
um, they actually have a dominant gene which is resistant to cry one they see all the genes in Australia are recessive okay. which means you need two copies of them which means you have a whole lot of techniques at your disposal to try and stop it developing all right, so we're talking about the resistance genes within the caterpillars. Yeah, yeah. Just, sorry, so, to, yeah. to, to call, it's stop a confusing story. Ah, <laughs> oh, sorry, I should have. <laughs> no, no, so we've got. Clearly. So, I mean, there's been lots of research done into this to look at the fine scale interactions of the genetics of the cotton and then how the moths are responding to that. So, we're lucky in Australia in that there was, like you said, the resistance genes that the caterpillars have are recessive. Okay. Yeah. 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 So with the advent of the of this this with the advent of this um the the BT cotton, it's meant that the spray regime has really dropped off. Mm -hmm. So you can get away with spraying one to two sprays a year. They've really developed an an integrated pest management plan. So what that is is that you basically try and design your crop so that you don't need to spray at all minimum okay. amount of interference. Um, and if you do need to spray, you try and use the softest option possible to try and allow your beneficials in the crop, so that's your um, parasitoids, your pests, um, your predators, sorry, your parasitoids, your predators, to, um, to manage the pests in situ so that um, you don't actually have to spray. Because what they've found is that if they try to spray for some of these secondary pests, such as a murid, which is a hemiptera, um, then that can actually trigger outbreaks of other pests, such as um, whitefly right at the end of the season. So this so is a pretty non-controversial perspective, right? It's sometimes painted as if farmers and growers would be happy just spraying insecticide over everything and it's it's the the hippie environmentalists that don't want that to happen but it's not integrated pest management is sort of best practice now it is best practice now yeah and um it's very advantageous for looking for um, a decent crop for the long term hmm. um there are people what what we've had integrated pest management in cotton now for 20 years hmm. and what we have now is that there are um challenges to maintaining it because the generation that was looking down the barrel of losing the cotton crop completely in the late 90s you know they're getting older now and some of the, and the new people coming in have never had that experience of when the pest can really get out of control like that mm. and so the um the impetus to maintain ipm there's there's a lot more of um other factors in play there's a challenge to see how many bales per hectare you can make um, rather than just looking at the um, how much profit you make out of your cotton. Because, of mm -hmm. course, if you don't have to spray, you don't have to pay for that. But alternatively, also, if you're following a more integrated pest management approach, you do want to monitor your crop to make sure everything is balanced. And, may, and the other thing is that if you use softer option sprays, then they will actually... Um, be more um, expensive so that's another cost as well mm. and um, yeah no it's a it's a really dynamic system and there's um, all sorts of things in play um, like with resistance management we use um, a number of techniques to stop the caterpillars developing resistance to the bt toxins 
Um, so, for example, one of the things we do, which has been we've managed to do here in Australia, which they haven't been able to do successfully in the US or in other places, is people have been disciplined enough to grow what's called a refuge. All right. So the idea of a refuge is that it produces sufficient moths um, to dilute any resistant moths coming out of a BT crop because they're recessive. So that means that their offspring would be cooled if they um, if they were um, encountered a BT crop All because right. they're only carrying one gene. So it's to keep the resistance levels low. So that's quite a um, interesting technique from a resistant management perspective. Mm. So that's one of the areas that I've done quite a bit of work on, looking at the effectiveness of refuges and the um, and um, how how well they're working within the system. So the idea is that moths that are able to survive within a crop are likely going to be resistant to the toxins That's in the cotton, idea, yes. Whereas moths that aren't living in cotton fields Will be... won't have that selection on them, so they'll have the non-resistant genes. So if you can get a population happening with both of these, yeah, it'll sort of dilute yeah, 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 genetic dilution during the season. So what makes a refuge? Is it just native habitat? What, what's a good refuge? We have structured refuges, which is ones that the growers are mandated to plant. Okay. So that used to be, um, and in terms of it has to be, well, it used to be 10% of the crop had to be the equivalent of non-BT cotton, just normal cotton okay. that the caterpillars would eat. Yeah. Now, what what's been found is that pigeon pea is really attractive to um, Helicoverpa, to mm-hmm. the moth. And so you could get away with only planting 5% of pigeon pea because it would make as many moths as cotton, non-BT cotton. But there's some challenges with that because pigeon pea doesn't quite flower in sync with the cotton. And mm-hmm. so there seems to be some, you know how much it's very good at the end of the season at producing enough moths, but earlier on, not so much. So that's sort of, um, there's a bit of a challenge there with that. Now with the three genes in the system, you only have to produce equivalent of 5%. It's halved the amount of refuges needed. The other technique that is used is season quarantining, where you try and stop anything going between seasons. So what you do is you pupae bust. So what that is, is that the little moths lay pupae into the soil. And so you cultivate the soil after your crop and that destroys the pupae. So that's to stop anything that could have been developed in the cotton going through to the next season. So next time you have a crop, any helicoverpa that are there haven't come from a resistant population. That's the idea that they haven't, because they overwinter as pupae. So if they're right. sitting under the crop, then they, yeah. if you do, this was a technique actually developed to deal with resistance to insecticides. They tried to use this when the insecticide resistance was quite bad. Mm. So what does the, what do the caterpillars actually do to the plants? Are they just defoliating them or? Oh, they're mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they um, eat the bowls, which is, oh, okay. the, where the, you know, which is the fruit, which makes the cotton. So they eat the flowers and, and they focus more or less on the flowers and the bowls, but they also eat the leaves. Okay, so I should clarify, this cotton plant, the yeah, bit the that plant. we use to make stuff, the white fluffy thing, that's yeah. the fruit. Yeah, 
So okay. yeah, so it's it's basically it's fruit. Yeah. So it's a type of hibiscus. So it makes a very nice flower. Mm-hmm. And then when the flower dies, you get that sort of fruit, a sort of um, fruit deforming. You can go out and have a look. And then because <laughs> they're just doing this now, mm. and then that opens up, and it's all the fibers around the seed, which is what you use as your cotton. And in the plant, it's already white. You know, it's um, yeah, it's really nice stuff. Yeah, this might be and, an odd question. What does wild cotton look like? Is it this a um, regrown Frankenstein cotton? Yeah, for agriculture, or what are we looking at? Um, there's two t- varieties of cotton that are used in the industry. Um, there's the highland cotton, the prima cotton. No, I'm getting this around the wrong way. <laughs> it's prima cotton, which is really high-end cotton, but doesn't produce as much. And then it's the general cotton that is planted all over. And now you're really asking me, I can't remember if it's from India. I think it's originally from India, but mm. I'm not sure. We do have an Australian version up north yeah. within that same genus. I'm just wondering, so, at, at, a, at a natural history level, why would it have this um, fluffy fruit? Why would it have the fluffy fruit? Possibly to for disperse them, the dispersal. Oh, okay, a little wind yeah, dispersed. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Thing. Yeah. Ah. But you can, I've, I've done this because my caterpillars <laughs> were so good at eating. Yeah. Because... Um, this is another challenge with the little caterpillars is that they can um, there's not as much BT toxin in the fruit oh, in the okay. little fibers yeah. and um, so you can get caterpillars actually surviving on your BT cotton that haven't actually that aren't actually resistant mm. we found that you could when there were two genes but with three genes we haven't been able to do this so it's yeah. it's better for the industry like that but with two genes they could they, and um, they eat out all the little fibres when they're, before they're proper hard fibres, and they're actually quite sweet. <laughs> <laughs> right. The case quite nice. Yeah. Lots of your work is to do with making sure there are predators around to um, eat these little pests. Well, I've gone back to that for the last um, nearly 10 years. I've been working actually on refuges, mm-hmm. and there seems to be some change happening that is quite bizarre and I'm wondering if it's an influence from climate change. Oh, in what way? Well, what's happened is that the population of Hedicoverpa used to be really prominent in February, in January, February. We used to collect a lot of moths, but in the last project we had, that was all delayed till March. So, which is good for the cotton industry because that means that's when um, the, the pigeon pea is really effective. The cotton was still flowering everything early on, but mm. just weren't getting moths out of them at that stage. And we've had some really hot years here. So um, Hedicoverpa can estivate over summer. So that would be something really interesting to actually have a look at and see if that's what's happening now or whether it's just three years of dodgy crops. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so the flowering season yeah, of the cotton was, hasn't changed? No. no. Okay. The cotton's still flowering at the same time. Yeah. But the um, instead of getting, we used to get a peak January, Feb, well, one in January, one in February. Now you get nothing until March, and also another a late one in March, which is right at the end, the last generation really. And because you have about, or well, it varies on where you are in Australia, but here in the Namoy, oh, I want to say four, four or five generations in the season, All maybe right. four. And um, that, so that last generation in March is before they go to ground and hibernate over winter. Mm. But um, 
yeah, before you used to have these earlier seasons in the cotton, now we're not getting it till late. All right. But the community in cotton is huge. We've collected like over a hundred species in cotton of different animals, different um, invertebrates in the canopy because we did some work comparing the canopy. Okay, so on of, the cotton plants themselves, not just the, yeah. the general area. No, on the okay. cotton plants themselves. Mm. And there's a lot of beneficials there. And because when you're not spraying for um, pests, it produces a lot of beneficials. Mm. So now what, you know, like ladybirds, lace wings, things like that, as well as the spiders, which tend to stay in the crop. Yeah. So now it's becoming more a case of actually um, a source of beneficials, whereas before it could have been a sink as beneficials come in and get sprayed out. Now it's become more of a source. Mm-hmm. But um, there, the, but as I said before, there is the challenge now of maintaining IPM and keeping growers enthous- interested in doing IPM. So obviously not using insecticide is one way to make sure you have these beneficial predators. Yeah. But what other ways are there? Um, well, you can a good way to support your field is to have natural refuges around. So they're called unstructured refuges. Mm-hmm. So they can be both a refuge for Helicoverpa. So yep. you can they can produce more moths, which is sort of like the stock root that you've got out the front here, mm-hmm. where they run the cattle. That can produce some Helicoverpa in um, good years. Yeah. But also, um, people plant um, na- or maintain native bush on their farm. And that can also be a nursery for beneficials. Mm. So your so your beneficials can come out of that and help to support the um, animals in the help to attack the pests in the crop. Mm. We also have um, companies like Bug for Bugs that actually will grow beneficials for you. Oh. And this is really good when, um, like for instance, particular parasitoids that attack white fly, and um, this has been really good for um, maintaining a really IPM approach and growers that you, um, that will actually put out um, beneficials that they've bought in into their crops uh, will um, are more are much more keen on looking after their their beneficial community. Mm. They've tried to release some using drones, even have a drone flying over, just dropping, dropping, in dropping in. <laughs> <laughs> dropping beneficials into the crop. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, can you quantify the flow-on effect of that? I mean, does it have to be a... If, if you're dropping in a predator or something like a, a parasitoid, does it have to be very specialist in hunting down the pests you want them to hunt? Um, well, they use trichogramma, and trichogramma is an egg. is an um, is a native trichogramma. Um, which is an egg parasitoid. Mm-hmm. So that attacks eggs. So, so it's not that clarify specific. Parasitoid. So the yeah. wasps lay their eggs in the egg of the caterpillar. Yeah. Okay. And destroy it. Yeah. Um, with the white fly, um, the, the the parasitoid is specific to the white fly, mm-hmm. and attacks. I'm not, I think it's the larvae. These are really really tiny animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine you could release a bunch of those and then actually look directly at the impact you can, they're having on the pests. Yeah. Is it harder then to look at the impact that more generalist beneficials are having, things like your spiders and mantises and things? Yeah, we tried to do that in the field um, 
years ago on the effect of direct effect of spiders, but it is really difficult. But we have we can show in the lab how much they eat, mm. like and how effective they are at, at attacking things yep. like mirrors, which tend to trigger extra spray. So if you've got a good contingent of spiders there, mm. yeah, it will attack them. Yeah, and, and spiders are they're your thing, right? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Your background wasn't always in pest management. No, I masquerade as an entomologist. <laughs> I'm really how a long have you arachnologist. Been <laughs> pulling how the long? wool over people's eyes. Whoa, a long time now. Because <laughs> I've been working in the cotton industry since 2001. All right. So it's a wee while now. So yes, no, my first love is still Argerodes. So it's in little... 2001, is that when you came out to Narrabri? Yeah. All right, so you came yeah. out for the job here. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while now. How was that <laughs> transition into applied science? I guess um, it was. It was, there's some things that I miss. Mm. Um, what I like about working in the cotton industry and um, being an applied scientist is um, your is that people care about your work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I find something new about Argerodes. There might be, I don't know, 20, 50 people in the world who care, you know. <laughs> but if I find something really relevant to the cotton industry, mm. then that has a big effect. Yeah. And people, you know, it's it, you feel you're doing your part, you know, for, um, yeah, for maintaining um, a better environment. I feel, though, that... And, and I don't want to imply that this is your motivation at all, but for myself, I know that lots of the research that I do has broader implications and applications and stuff, but that's kind of not what motivates me to do what I do. I, I, I'm, and I find that's pretty common amongst people. They just really like worms, <laughs> or they really like the behavior of a particular beetle. No, I, um, I've done some work on spiders, which has been really fun. Mm. And... Um, we found some really interesting things with the moths. Um, I still have to, we still have to publish this, but with a student, we found that if we exposed um, Punctigera to low levels of Cry1AC, the first Bt toxin, then their if they were exposed as a larger caterpillar, then their offspring were more resistant to the Bt toxins than oh. other caterpillars than um, that have been exposed as only as up to third instar or not exposed at all. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's, um, looks like, that seems to be some form of epigenetics, but I need to publish that. <laughs> and it seems like done, a perfect project here. You're combining your love of spiders with mm. your... Well, yeah, you can... We did some really neat things with, um, with link spiders. Oh, what's a link spider? On the, it's, he's on the wall outside. He's the most common... <laughs> um, um, uh, above ground or oh, a oh, canopy predator here okay. in the cotton. Uh, wolf spiders are the most common on the ground yep. running around. And he's got little spiky legs mm, and right. um, he lunges at prey. And um, we found that they were very effective when we did our field experiments, that they were very effective at controlling mirrors. Mm. Um, but that with the presence of um, Damsel bugs, which is another predator on mirrors, the dynamics changed. Mm. 
we we found that the presence of the predator could actually move the position of where the mirrors were in the crop and then alter right. the damage like that. So you've got spiders on the ground, spiders on the plants. You want to cover all your bases, so there's nowhere for your pests to hide, really. Yeah, well, it's whether they're at the ba- in the middle of the crop or higher up in the top of the mm. crop. Yeah. Or that, yeah, so I'm, that was quite fun. I'm guessing, I don't know, maybe it's you know, a, my bias of spending a lot of time with city folk, but do you find it's a hard message to get out that you want spiders and things in your fields? Um, well, they've been, we've been at it for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, no, I, one grower put it to me in a really interesting way. He said, so um, what I do is I regard my beneficials like stock. So yeah. what I want to do is I want to manage my stock in the field. Mm. And, um, and when I've got a good, good stock in the plants, then they will help protect them against pests coming mm. in. And I think that's a really excellent way of um, of um, viewing beneficials yeah. within the cotton. And it's not just predators. Yeah. If you've got a good source of mm. insects, you have mm. you know, pollinators as well and detritivores yeah. and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. There's, um, I've done, um, to, um, on, to change the topic, mm-hmm. um, I've also been involved with um, Salyets moths, not spiders. But... <laughs> <laughs> But with um, work from people um, in um, at Lund University mm-hmm. in Sweden, and um, Eric Warren is actually an Australian who's gone over and lived there, and they do a lot of work looking at bogon moth migration. Okay. So this is a great spot for it because the bogon moths have to come here and they have to rise up over Mount Capita before flying on to oh, the okay. snow mountains, where they um, where they um, estivate. And um, so they've been coming here for about four or five years to work on bogon moth migration and finding out how the moths actually migrate, yeah. what, what systems they're using, whether they're using vision or whether they're using the magnetic field. Okay. And that's been really enjoyable working with those guys and helping them out with their so work. Are they here, so are the grubs around here and they're hatching out in heading they, south? How does that work? Um, the grubs are in land. And the mm-hmm. caterpillar, there, there are some that um, hatch out here. We have um, a relative, a related species that's in the cotton, but it's not the actual bogon moth. And um, they come in from the west and fly in and have to go over the mountain, Mount Capita, to go down. And so that's quite, that's been really enjoyable working with them. They like mountains, bogong moths. <laughs> they like mountains for <laughs> some reason. Yeah. Mentioning Mount Capita too. Uh, it's that's a great little national park <laughs> for yeah. anyone that wants to come out here. Yep. And I'm I'm desperate now. Now that I'm up in this region, I have to work on these pink slugs. Yes. <laughs> I know you have to. Actually, they would have been good. Just oh, I didn't think of it, but we've just had a really major yeah. rainstorm. So. Um, like the day or so after would have been the best time to go and have a look for them. I'm that was the day sure. I arrived. I didn't even think I should have driven up. No, I didn't think of it either. <laughs> but last year when I was here, I drove up there early one morning. Thought, who knows, maybe I'll see one. I, I think I, we, I think we counted over fifty in an hour. You actually got, found them. Yes, we got super well, and lucky. It just, and it just rained. Yeah. Oh, I think it had drizzled or something the night before. 
Wow. So we weren't expecting much. And everyone we've told has just been blown away that we saw that many. Oh, I'm so jealous. (laughs) I have never seen them. It's just wrong. Yes, I should have. I should have. I should make more of an effort to go out and see them. (laughs) So it's only the second time I've gone looking for them. And I think I just got lucky. And they're everywhere. So. Yeah, well, I'm not talking to you now. <laughs> Just going to have to... How many years have you been here now? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> well, anyway, getting back to spiders. Uh, you, you, you name-dropped the Argerodes as, as yes. your secret passion. What they're, are they? Uh, they're little thieves. Okay. So they, they ha- they're called kleptoparasites. They hang around the webs of much larger spiders particularly the golden orb web spiders. Okay. So I, I try and have heaps of golden orb web spiders around my house mm. <laughs> on the veranda. And um, they um, will steal from the host and they have battles among each other <laughs> for access to the food and for, for females and males have battles for females and right. stuff like that. I, I think there's all sorts of really interesting studies that you could do on Argerodes. They're up north there are um, mixed species groups, so there's all different species all hanging out together. So that would, there's all, all right. sorts of neat things. So kleptoparasites is in klepto as in kleptomaniac. Yeah, and so parasites is that they're pinching food from the host. Alright, yeah. so they don't ever do they, they don't ever actually spin their own web. They, yeah, they spin um, a support web, so they spin sort of a scaffold against the um, web of the okay. of the host spider, and um, then they come down to, then they use this as a, to sneak onto the web, because when they're on the web, they could get eaten, yeah, yeah. and so they sneak down, and they make another connection, and they sneak back, and then if they're scared, <laughs> they run away, and, and then they plug into the food, and they just swell before your eyes, they sort of like right. um yeah I so know they had their own little uh, refuge their little home base they yeah, ran back they do. to they run back to there. and when there's more than one eating from the host they don't they don't fight or they may carefully go back and have a big fisticuff in the web and then come back <laughs> they're not going to fight in someone else's web <laughs> well they're not no well the host is huge yeah you know, just eat them they could get easily wrapped up in the food bundle yeah yeah, no. No, they're pretty cool. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess people have big spider webs in their backyards. Look Go out, out for look little for... silver guys if you're in the south and if you're in the north. Yeah. They could also be silver and black um, and orange and silver and orange. It's different species. All right. So any yeah. uh, Argerodes projects coming up? Or uh, I wish. Is it a pipe dream? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one will pay me. <laughs> They're not in the cotton. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. You could plant wrong. some in there and tell your bosses. That wouldn't be helpful <laughs> because they're just stealing from other other spiders. You do get some cool spiders, yeah. mainly at the end of the season, like um, the six-spined spider, which is a really pretty orb-web spider, but mm. Hydrodes doesn't really pick on that one. It prefers the Nephila. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a good point that the big... we don't often look for things in artificial landscapes you yeah know, naturalists go looking in rainforests and pristine areas but mm. there can be a lot yeah everywhere really yeah yeah no I, um yeah i was um involved in um a paper um with people from the university of sydney um working um looking at um ipm and urban habitats so we compared the um uh what we had what what the IPM system in cotton 
with um, IPM systems to managing mosquitoes and then also how IPM could be more developed in an urban setting. So I was a junior author on that paper, mm. which was really fun. Well, maybe we'll, uh, I'll have to come back and interview again in a couple of years and see if you've managed to find an excuse to, to work on more spiders in cotton farms. Well, I farms. hope so. <laughs> I hope so, because my current project... Oh, what we're looking at more now is more the below ground. So we've okay. done a lot of work on the above ground communities and um, looked at whether they difference between BT and non-BT crops. And um, they they do when you have a heavy invasion of um, um, of Helicoverpa, because Helicoverpa provides a, if you're comparing cotton with Helicoverpa with cotton about Helicoverpa, community's quite different. All right. Because they've taken away all the fruit, so all the insects associated with fruit are no longer there. Yeah. And also the all the insects associated with the frass of the caterpillar are on the non-BT cotton, but they're not on the BT cotton. So you do get different communities. Hmm. What we're looking at at the moment is trying to get a better understanding of the below ground because I feel it's been somewhat neglected. Yeah. And so we're just trying to see um, what's happening below ground and the effect of compaction, which is becoming quite a problem because they've got new big machines that yeah. they put on the cot on the crops and yeah, it's causing all sorts of problems. What well, is below ground? Are we, we're not just talking worms and stuff. We're talking about we're talking about um, insects. So we're talking about beetles and spiders and yeah. um, stiffinids and things like that. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, you think you hear about compaction and you think it's a problem for soil health itself and yes. roots yes. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But you're right; it would be a huge problem for everything else. Well, lives yeah. in the soil. Yeah, and you've got earwigs and things that will attack pests underground as well, you know, like the um, the pupae underground. Yeah. And there's also some interest in what communities are around the roots and what can assist with um, nice root development, mm. how that difference, difference is impacted by impaction, of course, but also by what insects are around. Yeah. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for this new research and... Uh, Underground bugs in cotton fields. <laughs> if people want to find out more, I guess they can look up the CSIRO yep. website and all the work they do on cotton. Mm-hmm. And you're you're not on Twitter or anything sharing out your discoveries. I am on Twitter, Twitter, but I think I've written on it once, <laughs> maybe right. five to ten years ago. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll... I don't think I've even done. Yeah, no, no. All right, well, I wouldn't send people there. No, I suck at that. Sort of <laughs> that. All right, well, I should probably let you get home. It's, it's, it's finishing time, isn't it? Yep. All right, well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Mary. Okay, thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Make sure to check us out on Twitter at InSitu Science or at InSituScience.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>